Well, friends, for those of you who don't know, over the summer here at Charter Oak Church, we have been working through the book of First John. The book of 1 John is a small little book. It's only about five chapters long in the New Testament. And we have been working through this verse by verse, and we've even been challenging many of you to please address uh, the, 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 the chance to try to memorize the first chapter of 1 John. It's only uh, 10 verses long, and it's going if to, you, if you take one verse a week, that'll be 13, 13 verses that you can address, or excuse me, 13 weeks to address 10 verses over the summer. So continue trying to memorize 1 John throughout the summer, the first chapter of 1 John. Find different ways to, to persevere through this. Use post-it notes. Put them around it, whatever it, it, it takes. Um, hey, Sean, I'm hearing a lot of feedback up here. Can you address that if possible? I feel like I can't move from where I'm standing. And so if you could just make sure that it's not overwhelming us, I appreciate that. Now, as we enter into today's portion of 1 John, we're in 1 John chapter 2, but I need to warn you that this particular passage is going to start off with a bit of sounding an alarm for those of us who call ourselves Christians. This is a passage that's meant in some ways to challenge us to wake up with, with God's word. You see, part of what we're going to have to do today is we're going to have to seriously confront perhaps one of the greatest challenges that Christians have to deal with in, who are living in the West and living in the modern day and age. Many of us wonder, well, what's the biggest challenge when it comes to being a Christian today? And some people say, oh, well, it's the challenge of potentially having to be persecuted for your faith. But let me actually say that that's not the biggest challenge that many Christians, especially those who live in the West, have to deal with. The greatest challenge for many Christians today is actually the seduction of the world. It's being pulled in, it's being lured by the world of which we are living in and allowing the values of the world and, and the, the vision of the world and all of those things around the world to pull us into and lead us into a different way of living. Charles Spurgeon, one of the, a great, great famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, I believe one reason why the church of God at this present moment has seen so little influence over the world is because the world has seen so much influence over the church. Did you hear what he's saying there? That many times the Christians and the church as a whole, they wonder, oh, well, why aren't we making a better influence on the world around us? And he's simply saying, well, it's because you're allowing the world to influence you. You're allowing the world around you to have a greater influence upon us as opposed to allowing God through us to influence the world. Now, when we really dig into the details of this, there's a lot of statistics that reveal that many professing, professing Christians, they don't actually live all that different than non-Christians. Did you know that? Part of what it means to be a Christian is to live a life that's different, that's other. And yet, too many Christians live their lives almost identical to non-Christians. So, for example, just consider consumerism and generosity. Christians are often just as materialistic, if not more so, than the world around us. We're addicted and we're obsessed to consumerism just like everybody else. So the spending patterns of Christians are almost non-distinguishable from others. Oh, roughly only 6% of people who call themselves a Christian actually tithe. And 50% of people who call themselves a Christian don't give any of their resources away. Consider sexual ethics, relationships. The way that we use our time. Many Christians are all talk and no walk. The percentage of Christians that are using pornography is the same as non-Christians. The percentage of Christian marriages that end in divorce is the same as non-Christians. 
the priorities of where we spend our time, whether you're a parent or a family or a single, is almost virtually identical to where those who don't go to church spend their time as well. And for those of us, those of us that are raising kids, the, where, the, the decisions that many Christians make in terms of how they're raising their children and where their children are spending time is almost not any different than how a lot of non-Christians are making those same decisions. And it's not necessarily that those decisions are harmful for their kids, but what's going on is many of those, our, our kids are not, are not getting the things that are life-giving for them when it comes to the faith. Many of this evidence shows itself up whenever, whenever kids grow to become young adults who walk away from their faith, not because they have made some sudden decision that they don't want to believe this anymore, but it's because their faith has been such a house of cards over the last 15 years of their life that they don't really feel like they're walking away from anything that was there in the first place. Racially, the church is more divided and more segregated than the world around us. And many Christians are more fearful and more prejudiced towards people who are different than them than non-Christians. Now, obviously, we could just keep on talking about these issues, right? They really make us feel good, don't they? We could talk about the way that, the way that Christians handle their anger or engage in politics or consume entertainment or care for their bodies and on and on and on and on is often no different than the way that non-Christians do. And this obviously leads to a really hard reality, a really hard question. Why aren't we different? Something needs to change. We are living just like the world around us. Instead of loving Jesus first, many Christians actually love the world first. And we're going to take a look at what that means. What, you know, what is the world and what does it mean to love it? We're going to take a look at that later on in this text. But right now, let's hear what John has to say to us. I want you, if you have your Bibles with you, we've been challenging you to bring your Bibles every Sunday. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be starting off in verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. And I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as we work through this text together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, starting with verse 12. John writes... I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. In these verses, John is explaining that practice, the practices and the patterns of the world, and we'll see what he means by that word in a, in here in a little bit, by the world, that they are set up in so many ways against God's word. 
The practices and the patterns of the world around us are often set up in opposition to what it is that, God's, that God intends. This is a world where it's normal to go day after day gratifying ourselves, indulging ourselves, entertaining ourselves, exalting ourselves, and on and on and on, without any regard or character to what it is that God is calling us to do or to become. John is writing to this, this young church, and he loves this church. He cares for this church, but he's trying to remind them that church should look different than the rest of the world. To be a part of church is to be part of a community, to be part of a unique family, and that unique family of God is meant to look different. Our schedules, our spending, our giving, our marriages, our parenting, our purity, our lives should look very different from the rest of the world. And it's not just for the sake of being different, right? We're not supposed to look different for the, you know, like a teenager who just wants to stand out from everybody else. No, that's not why the church is called to be different. We're called to be different because our priorities are supposed to be different. We focus first and foremost on loving God. And our love for God will then affect us and affect the world around us so much so that our love for God compels us to act differently. When you are in love with somebody, you act differently whether you want to or not. If we are truly loving God, then our lives will truly act differently whether we want to or not. Now notice, John's addressing in these, in the, in these opening verses, perhaps you noticed this and you thought, oh, what's going on there? In these verses, John addresses different groups of people at the very beginning, starting there with verse 12. And he uses family language. Did you notice that? He refers to the people, he says, I write to you children. And then he says, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. He appears to be using different categories of people in the church. Now, let's take a look at verse 12. T taking a look at verse 12, John first seems to be speaking to children, right? He's just talking to the children. But, but, but see, notice, whenever John uses the word children or child, that's actually his phrase or his word for the entire body of believers, when he's calling somebody children or child, he's talking to the entire community of faith. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, if you are working through this in your own Bible and you're looking for places to underline or circle, you can see a picture up there. Go ahead and underline that phrase, children, right? This is an important term for John. Underline that phrase because the word children, this is the whole church. In fact, just in that little book of 1 John, he refers, to the Christ, he refers to Christians as children 14 times. 14 times he refers to, to the church as being the children of God. Now, John, when he's writing, he actually considers himself to be a father in the faith. And so that's part of the idea. He sees himself as being a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father who is helping the, the, this young church grow into who God's calling them to be. But John also wants to emphasize, and we're going to see this too in future weeks, John also wants to emphasize that when you become a Christian, it's not just something that you believe in your head and then it's over. When you become a Christian, you become a part of something. You become a part of a new family. So to refer to us as children, John, he's not just saying, oh, that you're young. He's saying, you are now a part of a new family. You're a part of the family of God, And we're going to take a look at that in future weeks as we work through those, this letter. So then, if John, whenever he's referring to children, he's referring to the whole church. Well, then what's going on in verse 13? Let's take a look at verse 13. What's, who's John talking to here? He says, I'm writing to you fathers 
because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Okay, so first of all, this is not exclusive to males in the church. In the ancient world, this was typical of using the male pronouns to try to address the entire body. Now, that's not John's point here is to only address specific categories of, of whether you're male or female. No, fathers and young men are actually spiritual categories. John's using these as spiritual categories, right? If you're a child, you're a part of the whole community. You're a part of the whole family of God, right? Fathers and young men are spiritual categories. And so, for example, in today's, par- par- you know, today's parlance, we might say something like this. I write to you, parents in the faith. Something like that, right? Instead of saying fathers. The fathers are those men and women who are farther along in their spiritual journey than others. And therefore, they know God deeper. The young men are those who are newer believers to the faith, men and women alike, who are newer believers, and they are just beginning to know what it means to be with Jesus and to overcome evil in their lives. They're, they're towards the beginning of their faith, if you will. And so here's the, here's the power of what John is trying to do. And by the way, if you want to, underline the word fathers if you wish to, and you can see, you can then circle the word known and then underline the word young men and circle the word overcome. You can see these are categories of people who, do, who are doing different things in their spiritual journey. Here's the point of John's statements. When he speaks, by speaking to the fathers and to the young adults, if you will, in the faith, he's forcing all of us who are reading this book, he's forcing us to step back and ask ourselves, which one am I? Am I a spiritual parent in the faith, someone who has been working along this journey of faith for many, many years and I'm growing deeper in my knowledge of who God is? Or am I more of a young adult, somebody who perhaps is still new to this faith, even though perhaps I've been around it for a while, I'm still dealing with some of the very, very basics of what it means to follow Jesus. You might be 65 years old, but you've barely known Jesus really for maybe three months. You're a young adult in the family of God. You might be 30 years old, but you've known Jesus all your life, and you display a love for God and a love for serving him and seeking, his, and seeking who he is. You might be a spiritual parent in the faith. Now, according to John, as I said, the fathers and the mothers in the faith are those who are further along in their journey and therefore know God deeper. And when we say know God, we're not talking about just a head knowledge. This isn't just about knowing what the Bible says. This word know that John uses, it it, it means to know something or someone by experience. It's not just knowing God with your mind. It's knowing God with your whole self, right? You can know about somebody, but you don't actually know them. Think of a celebrity. Many of us know all about celebrities. You know where they've been born. You know their family. You know their hobbies. But do you know them? Many of us, we don't know God, but we just know all about God. And so the spiritual parents in the faith are those who have come to that place where they truly do know God by experience. Now, according to John, the spiritual young believers, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, the spiritual young believers are those that have overcome the evil one. You see, if you think about it, and some of you perhaps have lived through this, and maybe you're living through it right now. When you first become a Christian, there's a lot of spiritual struggle that happens. A lot. And you find yourself having to constantly, actively die to sin all around you. You feel like you're constantly battling stuff. It's just all over the place. 
by God, and by God's grace, you're overcoming that sin, and you're little by little learning what it means to put on this new, this new character of Christ in your life. It's a spiritual battle. <clears throat> now, when talking about this, John actually refers to this overcoming as overcoming the evil one. And so we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do so, some of you might be curious, when we get to verse 14... And we're going to read that here. Let's read verse 14. Did you notice as you were following along in verse 14, didn't it feel like John was just saying the same thing again? If those of you who are looking at the text, you're like, okay, he says that in verse 13. You just explain parents, fathers, blah, blah, blah. And then he just goes on and says it all over again in a different way. What's going on with that? Verse 14, he says, I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. What's going on here? So... Why is John repeating what, I'm, what he's saying? And by the way, if you notice this too, for those of you who really care, he also makes some other dull changes. He changes the verb tenses. He moves from one tense to another tense, and on and on. What is going on here? In the ancient world, repetition, changing tenses, saying the same thing twice but slightly different, in the ancient world, that was how you emphasized something, Okay? So any of you ever received an email or a text message or something, and there's certain parts that are emphasized? This is how you and I emphasize things today. You know what we do? We underline things. We, we, bold, we put it in bold print. You ever got a text message, and it's in all caps, and it feels like the person's screaming at you, right? It's because we have this agreed-upon system that when you put words in all caps or you put things in bold or you change the color, it's this agreed-upon system that, that our eyes notice that and it jumps out at us and it says, pay attention to me, right? Well, in the ancient world, I mean, when John was writing this, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't, un he couldn't take bold print somehow and do that for, for underlining. And so instead, what they would do in the ancient world is they would repeat themselves, Whenever you see, whenever you're reading the Bible and you're like, Mom, why, it just said that. Why is it saying that again? The author is trying to say, pay attention to this. This is a way of emphasizing something. It's meant to jump out at you and force you to really examine what's going on here. And so John's emphasis is, again, forcing us to ask ourselves, which category am I a part of? Do I really know the Father? Am I really overcoming the evil one? Am I really as mature in my faith as I think I am? So maybe you want to do something in your own Bibles to emphasize this, this idea. Again, underline dear children, underline fathers, underline young men, circle this section, right? put a question mark in the margin and ask yourselves, am I really growing in my faith? Whatever you need to do right there in that text to say, this, is, this matters. Now, let's go back to verse 14 and 13 where John talks about overcoming the evil one. He identifies in verse 14 what it is that actually does overcome. He says what overcomes the evil one is having the word of God living in us. So this, this is why we read our Bibles. This is why it matters to know what the Bible says. This is why we're challenging you to memorize portions of Scripture. The more you know what God has to say, the more you are able to find the strength to overcome the evil one in the spiritual battles that all of us are going to encounter. Your strength to overcome the evil one comes directly from having the word of God abiding in you. Now, the evil one goes by many, many names. Who's the evil one, right? We, we, sit, we talk about this. It's, it's in the Lord's Prayer at times, you know, deliver us from evil or the evil one. Who is the evil one? John actually never uses a specific identifier. This is, this is as, as close as he gets. 
He doesn't ever use the term. But we see in other places in Scripture that the evil one is identified, and many of you know this already, is identified as somebody we refer to as Satan. Now, there are two activities of Satan that the Word of God challenges us to overcome, or excuse me, enables us to overcome. Two specific activities of what Satan does that God's Word can help us overcome. Here's the first. Satan's accusations. Now, did you know the name Satan is actually a Hebrew word for the accuser. That's actually where it comes from. It, 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 the, the name Satan actually originally starts off as just referring to the sense of the evil one as the accuser, the accusing one, and it, it eventually becomes referred to as this is Satan. This is who Satan is. He's the accuser. Now, imagine when, when, we, when we're talking about Satan as an accuser, imagine this. Imagine like this evil prosecuting attorney who's hurling accusations at you, trying to get you thrown in jail, right? Or, or somebody who's constantly trying to bring up everything that you've done wrong and, and w- while everybody's watching and hurling all of these things at you to try to make sure that you get the punishment that you deserve. Many times, Satan's accusations are focused on the things that we've done in our past, the mistakes that we've made, the sins that we've committed, the problems that we've, that we've, um, that we've struggled through. And he brings those things from our past and he hurls them at us and he's accusing us of, you're never good enough. You can't do this. You'll never be able to handle this in your own life. And we hear those things kind of on repeat in our minds. Revelation 12 actually describes the future defeat of Satan. But notice how he refers to him. Revelation 12, uh, verse 10 and 11 says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Maybe if you want to just sort of keep in mind who John's talking about when you're, when it's about overcoming the evil one, perhaps write revelation 12 in the margin right next to this to kind of, kind of, kind of trigger your mind to remember that this is about overcoming the accuser. And God's word is what enables you to combat those accusations. The more you immerse yourself in what God has to say about you, about who you are, who God has called you to be, who God has created you to be, the more you are able to overcome the accusations of, God, of Satan trying to say, no, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You'll never be able to overcome. You, look at all those mistakes you made. They'll never love you. They'll, they'll never want to celebrate you. They'll never want to spend time with you. They'll never want to come and be a part of it in your, your life. And on and on and on and on. Well, if Satan's accusations focus on many of the challenges and struggles that we have in our past, Satan doesn't stop there. But God's word also helps us overcome Satan's temptations. The accusations are where Satan focuses on our past. The temptations are where Satan focuses on our future, right? These are the temptations that we have not yet committed. If Satan can't undermine your faith by accusing you, he will be relentless in trying to tempt you into doing something that goes against what God wants for you and for your life. And temptation is of every sort imaginable. Most of the time, you know, many Christians, they only focus on the temptations for immoral behaviors, right? And that's a really big deal, and that's something that matters. But that's not just the only place where temptations occur. Many times, Satan will use the reality of us living in a broken and fallen world to try to tempt us into abandoning God. 
He'll direct our hearts and our minds to all of the problems in our lives, the pain, the loss of a loved one, sickness or disease, financial hardship, marital tensions, natural disasters, and on and on and on and on. And Satan will try to say, see, there's no such thing as God. Walk away from it. Look at the brokenness of this world. Walk away from God. He, and he keeps telling these things. And all of these things through Satan, they, they, and it says in other places in the, in the scripture, they all come through through various forms of lies. God is bad. Sin is better. Lie after lie after lie. But knowing the word of God is what enables you to overcome the evil one. So those of you who find yourself in the young adult category of spiritual, of spiritual growth, focus on absorbing and immersing yourself in the word of God. Because we are in a spiritual battle and it requires knowing how to overcome those battles. A theologian I read not too long ago about this passage, he actually just says this. He says, look, like it or not, the church is at war with the darkness and its minions. Like it or not, that's the reality of it. So what are we going to do about that? Now let's go back to that question of why John is emphasizing these verses in the first place. And the reason why he's emphasized them is, remember, he's challenging us to, to ask Am I actually knowing God better in my life? Am I really a spiritual parent in the faith? Am I, do I really know God better? Am I really a young adult in the faith? Am I actively seeking to overcome the evil one? And with those questions looming in the background, then John moves on to verses 15 and 17. And so he says in verse 15 and 17, 17 he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, in these verses, right after John has challenged us to stop and ask, who am I really? You know, where am I really in terms of my faith? Where am I really in terms of knowing God, in terms of overcoming the evil one? Right after he challenges us to, see, to identify ourselves, if you will, within the family of God, he then moves to a warning, to a caution. And he says, regardless of where you might be in that walk, don't allow your pursuit of God to become complicated by the allure of the world. Just because you are a part, you know, a part of a church or call yourself a Christian or have been a part of the family of God for years and years and years, don't allow the allure of the world, the temptations of the world, the, 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 all that is going on in the world to then complicate your, your spiritual walk, your, your spiritual growth. In other words, he's saying, if you are the kind of person who truly has been forgiven and knows God, like it says in verses 12 through 14, then make sure that your actions and your lifestyle match what I'm saying in verses 15 and 17. If you know God, then let your love for God overpower your love for the world. Let's take a look at verse, verse 15. This is the only command that's in this section. The only place where John says, you know, do this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Notice, he doesn't really leave a lot of wiggle room. He's not saying, you know, you can love these parts of it, but not that. No, he's do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, what is the world? Some of you probably are wondering, what in the world is, what in the, world is the world? The world, in John's, in John's understanding, the world is a system of thoughts, ideas, practices, patterns, pleasures, etc., 
that are set up against God's intentions. The world is anything out there that is opposed to God. Anything that, that is opposed to God's desires and intentions for what he created. He's saying that if we love those things that are against God more than we love God itself, that we are ultimately setting ourselves up against God. Now, in verse 17, he says, this is why chasing after the, the, the world is ultimately futile. It's because the world and its desires will pass away. Right? Everything that's a part of this world that is opposed to God, it's a short-term, instant gratification, microwave types of things. It's just pursuing things that are not going to last. It's sort of like somebody coming to you and say, look, l- let me sell you some stock, even though it's going to be worthless next week. Let me sell you a house even though the foundation is crumbling, right? Pursuing the things of the world around us is is sort of like purchasing something that's going to be worthless in a few days. But in contrast, John says, at the end of 17, those who do the will of God lives forever. If you love God, you will do his will and follow his word. So, and, And remember, the evidence of love for God is obedience. The evidence that someone truly does love God is in their obedience to God. So it's empty talk to say, I love God, and then not do what he says. When the love of God is in you, you start to then see everything around you as an opportunity to love God more. When you begin to love God, you then begin to see the world the same way that God sees it. What does John 3.16 say? Those of you who know that verse. For God so loved what? The world. Well, hold on. How can God love the world, but we can't? We see what happens is the more we love God, the more we then begin to love the world the way that God loves the world. And we see ways that we are seeking to redeem the world and to rescue the world and to save the world and to help the world come to be what God wanted it to be. But if we reverse it and try to love the world first, we ultimately get pulled into the temptations of the world and are never able to see what God's trying to do for the world. If we keep our focus on loving God first, we then begin to see the world as something to be saved, rescued, and redeemed, as opposed to something that we just temporarily want to enjoy for the sake of enjoyment in opposition to God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says something similar about how we go about looking at the world through the eyes of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Right, this idea of, look, look. obviously, yes, we, there's parts of the world that you have to be a part of. But when you begin to love God first, you're able to look at every aspect of the world, even down to the details of what you choose to put in your body for the glory of God. I want to end just with this. When I learned how to drive, my driver's ed teacher, his name was Mr. McCabe, he was a great teacher, I remember a random, random class, he stood up and he said, friends, there's three primary things that are going to prevent you from driving well, that are going to distract you, especially if they're in the car with you. Those three things are this, food, phones, and friends. That's what he told us. When you're learning how to drive, you got to make sure that those distractions of food, phones, and friends are, are where they need to be. You have to stay focused on the road no matter what's going on in the car around you or you need to get those things out of the car, you need to say no, or you need to pull over sometimes so that your attention is fully given to the road before you. Now, he didn't use these words, but he could have said something like this. He could have said, 
You have to love the safety of you and the people that are around you more than you love the pleasures of food, the the, the addiction to your phone, and the distractions of your friends. You have to be willing to love the safety of yourself and the world around you and those who are around you more so than you love the taste of that food that you're grabbing for in the seat, more than you love the text message that just came through on your phone, and more than than trying to impress the friends that are around you in your car. Many of us are so addicted to the things of this world that we've forgotten how to love, put our priorities right and make sure that our love for God is above and beyond and first and foremost before the other things that are around us. If we stay focused on the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, then we will learn how to love the world around us in the way that God calls us to love it. If we haven't learned how to focus on God's love for us, we will only pay attention to the things that will one day pass away. So keep your eyes on Jesus and stand firm on the promises that God has for you so that your eyes can focus on God's love for you. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day if if, if that's what it takes. Believe that by God's grace, Jesus is sufficient to wash away your sins and you can fully love God. And every time you fail, you can repent and confess, and God is righteous and just and will forgive you your sins. Cry out to God if you need to. The Word tells you to. Cry out to me. Listen to who God is and what God's calling you to do. Do you love God more than you love the world? That is the question that John sets before us all. Let's answer it wisely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this word from you would speak to us in a mighty and powerful way that we would seek to follow and obey you in all aspects of our lives, that we would fully obey you out of love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.